started. We have a quiz scheduled for today and if I get through chapter 18 we'll do the quiz today. If not, I'll hold the quiz over and give it to you with the final. So, quiz again is a list of objects starting with Alpha Centauri and the, and the, as a star in the Andromeda Galaxy and then the list of planets in the Sun. And all you got to do is list them in order. So, if you know the planets in order pretty much, you can do it. So, if we get to that today, if not, you can review and study the planets, make sure you've got them all in order. And that will be your quiz number eight. So if we can get to it today, that would be great, I'm hoping. But if not, we'll do that on, on Tuesday. Repeat it again. Repeat the list. It's got Alpha Centauri, the Andromeda Galaxy. Hopefully you know the Andromeda Galaxy is the furthest one. And Alpha Centauri is the next furthest one, closest in. And then I've got the planets. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. I even put Pluto in and added the Sun. That makes 12 objects. You just got to put them in order of distance. So start with the sun and work your way out through the universe. Oh, so the sun. Sun is the closest, so sun is number one. And then the planets, then the planets in order, and then a star, and then a galaxy. Oh, okay. So it should, it should be 12 points for everybody, I hope. Just like to look, glance down it and see that everybody got it wrong. Every once in a while, somebody transposes a couple of planets. But so if we don't get to it, you're going to put it on top of the final? I'm going to give it to you with the final to do. But this, but this should be the easy part. Do this first. Give you confidence. You know exactly what's coming. Yay, I'm doing good. Here's 12 points. So, okay. Homework 8. Homework 8 is due. If you've got it, I can take it today. If not, you can email it to me tomorrow sometime. And the iTunes quiz is up and available. I know a few have taken that already. So, and again, of these quizzes, two are dropped. So two quizzes will be dropped of all of the 12 that we've done this semester. So you'll, you'll lose two of them. There's the good part, right? Final exam. I'm done. You know, a week from now, I never have to see him again unless I decide to take the other course. You know, but that's two hours worth. The exam is twice as long as a regular exam, so you should have plenty of time to do it. Part one is chapters one through fifteen. That's everything that we covered. That is from the previous exams. It is exactly from previous exams. I ended up making it up and getting it printed. I didn't have time to go. Fiddle with anything. So, other than maybe changing a wording, it's pretty much word for word. Changing slightly, changing a wording to make something clear that was unclear on a previous one. It's, it's pretty much word for word from your previous exams. So, if you know your four previous exams, there's half the exam that's real easy. I hope. So, go through those, know those. Part two, that's the new material. That's chapters 16, 17, and 18. That'll be the tougher part, right? And those are each worth 100 points, so they're worth double what a regular exam is. That'll make it 200 total. Part three I threw in because I was doing extra credit for the other class and I didn't want to leave you guys out. So there's ten extra credit questions on stellar evolution. You may not have seen those specifically before, but they're extra credit. Yeah? How many of those questions would you say um, are essay questions? How many essay questions are there? There are, it's exactly the same. The two exams are exactly like the previous exams you took. So it's choose four out of six, choose four out of six. On the extra credit, there's only one. There is one essay for extra credit. But, so, but you have to do them, but they're separate. So you got to do four of these six and four of these six. You can't do. So eight essays? Yes. Why? Usually you do pretty good on those. Usually it's the fill ins that you hate, right? But you do have a word list. I gave you a word list. You have a word list for the fill ins. Yes. But the word list is twice as long as the number of. So I mean. 
the, the words are all there and they're in a list, so you can look at these, you know, 30 words and say it's, it's there. But you have, still have to know what you're looking for because if it's talking about a dead star, right, could be a white dwarf, could be a neutron star, could be a black hole. Well, they're all probably are going to be on there. You still have to know, but you're not trying to drill it out of your head. So hopefully you can just find it that way. Still don't have the screen on, do I? Okay. Your email is probably blowing up the weekend. I'll be here. <laughs> Actually, my, my final exam for my online class starts on Saturday. So they have the week to do it. So they start on Saturday. So I'll be, I'll be getting it from, from them too. So. But, but I ho I'm hoping this helps, part one. That's all going to be straight from your other exams. So you don't have to sit there and think about If you know those questions, you know them. I didn't change. Unless there, was, there were one or two where something was unclear. Or I thought maybe I just added a word or two to clarify it. But that was it. I'll eventually get the screen up there. So, other questions on that? Other than what's the answer? But it's the same size. I didn't double anything else. It's the same, other than there's, there's two parts that are the same length as what we've done before. You know, there's not any more questions than you had. So it's not a lot of questions. There's what is it, 13 multiple choice on each of these two parts. There's nine, nine true-false on each of the parts. There's like six fill-ins. It's exactly what you've been doing before. So there's not a lot of, not a lot of questions for you. All right, we're ready? Take it today? No! <laughs> just, get it, just get it over with and be done with it? <laughs> Well, if I had it already, it's being printed right now, so or should be being printed right now. So, so I can't change it. I know exactly it's already done. I can't change anything to it. So, okay. Picture of the day for today then. Next to the last one, I'll probably show you whatever they put up on Tuesday anyway. So you'll probably get to see one more. Uh, M106, one of the Messier objects. It's a galaxy. Right? Surprise. Hopefully we knew that now. It's a spiral galaxy, so sort of similar to our own Milky Way. And you can see the central bulge there and the spiral arms kind of trailing out. Very extended spiral arms in this one out towards this side and out towards this side. And you see again, as we've talked about, the blue being the young stars that have formed in those spiral arms and the red being the hydrogen. Hydrogen that's being excited by those hot young stars. Interestingly, this is actually one of the active galaxies, so something that we talked about relatively recently. It's one of the Seifert galaxies and is, again, one of those. So it's a very active galaxy. It's got something going on in the nucleus. got a great black hole there, something that is being fed, getting some energy, getting some stars and some nebulae that are actually being you know, incorporated into the black hole. And as they get close, it's giving off an, a tremendous amount of energy. So. Pretty picture of a galaxy there, at least an appropriate one for the class that we're, that we're doing here. We didn't end up with a picture of Mars or something for this class, it looks like. So, Questions? Okay, let's go on to chapter 17. We were almost done with chapter 17. Very, very close. We're going to finish that up and then go on through 18. No, oh, not chapter 18 yet. We're getting there. How did I switch to 18? Try this again. There we go. Okay. This is where we were finishing up last time. I've only got a couple more slides to go. A couple more slides to go here. So, 
This is what we'd seen. This is a sort of a simulation that was done. And what we'd found is that if you try to simulate the structure in the universe, how it would have formed over billions of years, using just the matter that we see, you couldn't do it. But if you used the dark matter in addition, which again is many times the ordinary matter, you could then produce, reproduce, after letting this simulation run and simulating, you know, not just a billion years, four billion years, 14 billion years of evolution, so significant amount of computing power to do that, and you could get structures similar to what we see in the universe today. Now what that means and what that tells us is that we are trying to figure out, we have to try to figure out with the dark matter as to how the dark matter, how we can see that, what kind of prediction is this going to make that we can test? Because it's all nice and good to come up with a theory, but if the theory doesn't predict anything that you can test, you can come up with a great theory, but if it has no predictions, nothing you can go test, it's useless. Right? It might explain everything, but if it doesn't make anything else that you can test, how do you know whether it's right or not? Just because it explains things, you know, there can be lots of ways to explain anything, but for a scientific theory it has to be able to test. And one of the predictions that is made by the dark matter is, I bring my clicker around, that it will actually create variation in the cosmic microwave background. So I told you how smooth it was, that it was incredibly smooth. You know, same no matter where I looked. Well, this dark matter does make a prediction that it will actually interact and, and make, interact gravitationally with the radiation early on. So a very slight amount and will have caused variations. So you'll have areas on the sky where the microwave background is a little bit brighter, a little bit more intense, others where it's a little less intense. And that's a prediction that, it's, that has been made. And that's something we've now observed. So that makes it sound like I was lying to you, right? I told you that it was completely smooth. It is completely smooth still. Might not look like it, right? It's a sense of scale though. And here's a better picture of it. A little more detail. And look at what the, you have to look at what the variations are. Remember this is about three degrees. The temperature, average temperature. We're zooming in and looking at things that are well, this is 300 microkelvins, which is millionths of a Kelvin. So you're looking at 300 millionths of a degree, and those are the those are the extreme variations. You know, 300 millionths of a degree hotter than that three degrees. 300 millionths of a degree colder. Essentially, it's completely smooth. But if we look at it and we magnify those differences, we can see that the variations do exist. So there's almost some of this. You know, you can look in it. You can see different you know, brighter and fainter areas, but you're looking at a very, very small range. And it's sort of, you know, like, you know, looking at a temperature, you know, temperature on the Earth and saying, oh, it's 80 degrees outside, or is it 80.00001, or is it 79.99999? It's 80 degrees, right? Who cares about that? Well, when we look in the details, here we can find a lot more information. We're looking at that kind of level. So it's not like it's 80 degrees or is it 75 degrees or is it 70 degrees. It's looking at that very, very small area of it. But that variation does exist and they've been able to measure it now. And again, it ranges about 300, you don't need to know the exact numbers, about 300 um, micro Kelvin. So 300 millionths of a degree is essentially the variations that we're seeing. And there are some areas of the background that are slightly hotter and slightly cooler. And that's what was predicted by the dark matter in these simulations is predicted that this is what we'd see and it's what we're seeing. Does that mean everything's right? No. 
It confirms it, gives us some more evidence that it might be correct, but it doesn't, obviously you can't prove a theory. You can demonstrate that it's correct or that it seems to work, but not guarantee that everything else, maybe it'll make another prediction later on that won't be true. So that pretty much finishes up 17. I'm going to go through the summary unless there's a question first and then we'll zip on to 18 and see how much of that we get through today. No? Question? Yes, sir. Well, it's not, it doesn't necessarily pertain to that. But, okay. Um, if you don't finish 18, are we required to uh, finish the chapter on our own? I'll, I'll make sure I get through anything you have to know. So I'm, I'm actually going to be handing, I have the slides, I brought the slides, I'm handing them out exactly what I'm going through, so I'll be giving you those in a minute. Because there is a lot of text on some of them and I don't want those who want to try to copy everything down, try to struggle to do that because I'm going to have to go through a little quicker. But I will get through everything you need for, because I know, I know what I put on the final, so I'll make sure. If you see me skipping something, you probably don't need to worry about it. Okay, so just summarizing chapter 17. When we look at the large scales, the universe was homogeneous, it was the same, any big block looked the same as any other big block, and it was isotropic, meaning if I look in one direction, and I look in the other direction, and I look in that direction, in every direction, it looks essentially the same when you look on a very big scale. 14 billion years ago, we've seen the expansion of we saw the expansion of galaxies. That's been going on for 14 billion years. If we trace them back, it sort of leads that there was some sort of explosion early on. Not an explosion as we normally think of an explosion now, but some sort of explosion creation of space itself about 14 billion years ago and that's what we call the Big Bang. What's going to happen to the universe? Well, two things. It's expanding. It's growing, so it's either going to keep doing that forever or it's going to stop. No, Got to do one of those two things. And there's that critical area right in between which tells us what that critical density is. You know, how much density, how much matter is there in the universe? If there is plenty of matter, the gravity is strong enough that it pulls everything back in and cr crushes it. If there's not enough matter there, everything just keeps rushing out away, rushing away. High density universe is, is what we call a closed universe. A low density universe is an open universe. High density was more like a sphere. Critical universe, just in the border between the two, was completely flat. And I'm going to be doing this every few minutes because I'm not going to reboot it right now. Okay. Critical universe is flat and a low density universe is an open universe. It's like a saddle, saddle shape. But We'd expect the universe to be slowing down, right? We've got everything pulling on each other. We expect it to slow down. That's not happening. The universe is actually, it looks like it's accelerating. That objects are now moving away faster than they were. Instead of losing speed to gravity, they're accelerating away faster. And our current theory of that is what we call dark energy. Trying to explain something, that, some sort of mechanism that would cause the universe to actually expand faster and faster. And that is sort of taking over. We looked at the chart last time where the density of the energy is, dark energy is actually the largest of now between matter and energy and the dark energy is actually taken over. So it's becoming the dominant force in the universe. I already did that. Universe is about 14 billion years old. And we've looked at the cosmic microwave background. I just showed you some pictures of, uh, pictures of looking at the sky with that. That is what's left over from the Big Bang. So when this occurred, massive explosion, Creation of all this was a lot of 
a lot of gamma rays, high energy radiation. It's since been stretched out over time and now it is actually in the microwave part of the spectrum, microwave radio part of the spectrum. Universe was originally dominated by radiation. When it first formed, it was primarily radiation. That was the dominant thing in the universe. Now it's coming to be matter dominated and actually switching over to being dark energy, dominated by the dark energy. So a change there over time and that's just constantly changing as the density of the matter spreads out. The dark energy which fills the whole universe becomes more and more important. When we see that, we see the cosmic background radiation from a time in the universe when atoms started to form. So that's when the temperatures got cool enough. The universe wasn't like one big giant star as it was very early. It's cooled enough that the atoms have been able to combine protons and electrons combine to form hydrogen and we call it the decoupling era. The radiation and matter are no longer coupled together and that's when we see the cosmic background radiation. That's from that time. Some of the problems that we had were the horizon problem. You know, how can these two edges of the universe communicate with each other? when they haven't been time for anything, you know, hasn't been time for light to travel between them, let alone any other kind of energy, any other or any other kind of energy. And the flatness problem. Why does the universe look so flat? It looks extremely flat. Much flatter than explained by any of the material that we the material that we see. So why does it look so flat? And we solve that by explaining that our current theory is inflation which just says that for an instant, in an instant, and again those seconds we were talking about, 10 to the minus 43rd seconds, 10 to the minus 35th seconds, you know, how many billions upon billions upon billions of those occur every second. It's an incredibly small amount of time, but the universe went from being the size of a uh, nucleus of an atom essentially to being the universe size or you know, universe size, gigantic in that instant. And that explains what we see in terms of why does everything look so flat? Well, we made it, we, made, we grew it so quick and we're looking at only this tiny section of it around us where light has had, had time to travel. Light hasn't, there could be more universe out there that light hasn't had time to travel from yet. We can't see beyond that edge. And last one. The density of the universe looks very much like the critical density. That seems to be what we're getting. It looks very open, but most of the energy is coming from this dark energy which is causing it to accelerate. Most of what we see in terms of the matter, again, two-thirds of the density is from dark energy. Dark, dark matter is most of the rest. And everything we've studied in the course for the most part, you know, the Earth, us, the stars, the galaxies, all the, all the stuff we've studied, quasars, all that, is the little tiny couple percent that's left over. So really what we've studied in this course is only a tiny fraction, although I've given you some idea of dark matter and some idea of dark energy, they dominate compared to the normal matter that we're used to. You know, the stuff that makes us up, that makes up all the stars and all the galaxies and the planets and everything that we spent time, a lot of time studying. And finally we finished talking about today the structure of the universe that we see. It couldn't have been caused by ordinary matter. There has to be something more. We can do the simulations based on just the regular matter that you see and if that was the case we wouldn't have formed the galaxies and the galaxy clusters that we see today. In order to explain those there needs to be the significant percentage of dark matter that actually helped and actually started to collapse gravitationally early, earlier on. And said so the dark matter counts for what we do see now. So that finishes up 17.
Questions, questions? Otherwise, we'll jump on to 18 and see where we see where we get. So, 18, we do, do, it's the last chapter in the book, but we do save it for the end. It's not actually a required part of the course. It's not, you know, on the forms that say we were supposed to cover this. But it's not one I like to leave out either because it's one of the, one of the more interesting ones to actually talk about. And it's the possibility of life in the universe. Now I'm going to go ahead and give, if you, if you want a copy, if you don't want a copy, but I have a copy of the slides, so because there's a lot of text on them, so if you're trying to copy stuff down, you want one, two, here. If you're trying to copy everything down, you can follow along here and make your notes on it. That might be a little easier. So, but it's the idea of life in the universe and the possibility that life may exist elsewhere than just here on the earth. And I'll go through the summary here. And this is slightly different than the one that I posted. I took out a few slides that I knew stuff that I probably wouldn't cover much or that I'd want to just skim through. I just took them out. So if you compare this to the other one, there's probably about seven or eight slides that are missing. You don't need to worry about, the, about those ones. But what we're going to go through, I'm still going to try to go through all the sections here, which is really what we call cosmic evolution. How do things change in the universe? And then we'll look at life in the solar system. You know, where are the possibilities that there might be life in the solar system? How about in the galaxy? Maybe not in this, maybe we don't have anything in the solar system, but it, could there be intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy? And then a little bit at the end on our search for extraterrestrial intelligence, looking for signs that there is something else out there. So, first thing to do is if you're going to talk about life, you have to define what, is, what do you mean by life? And that can be, you know, it seems very intrinsic that you, you know what, you just know what life is, but it's something in terms of trying to actually define it. What do you mean when we talk about life? And if we want to allow for things that we don't see on Earth, you know, we have to kind of expand our definition of what is, you know, what is a living creature? What does it, what does it do? How would we be able to detect it? And what if there are other things that, you know, a certain object can do, a certain object can do that seems very similar to life, but isn't really life. We have to come up with a way to actually define it. And it's not it's really such a simple thing to do. Some of the things that you get, that these are sort of some characteristics that maybe any life form should happen to have. So one is the ability to react, so it can react to its environment. You know, a rock doesn't really react to its environment, it's just there. It's, it has some ability to grow, takes in nourishment, turns it into energy, is able to grow in size, in structure, in complexity. It can actually change and grow over the course of its life. So it has a way to change. So it can grow, it can react, has the ability to reproduce, to create offspring with the same similar characteristics of the parent, whether it's a cell dividing, you know, in one single-celled organism dividing into two, they'd still have similar characteristics. Or, you know, more typical too, having, having another, having a child or something that would do, that would have similar characteristics to the parent. And then finally, the ability to evolve and change and change over time. So those are just some things that you're looking for, and then you have to sort of look at how you test that. I mean, if you notice, that doesn't that, that's very, very general. That doesn't say anything about water. Usually we talk about water for life, right? You've got to have water. 
Well, could there be a life form that based on something else? Maybe. So that, this sort of takes that into account, that we're not saying you need water. We're not saying you need oxygen. Um, we're not saying you need a certain temperature or anything else. We tend to think of that we need, you know, to explain. There are some areas in the solar system where we wouldn't be able to live. But is there a possibility that other life forms could have formed in that, in those other, in more and harsher areas. And we do have some on Earth, you know, that form and live in areas, you know, undersea vents and things where there are you know, microbes that can live at incredibly hot temperatures that would, you know, fry anything else. But there are, so there are, is a possibility that there are things that could be there elsewhere in the solar system at maybe an very hot or a very cold temperature. What about, like, bacteria? What about, what do you mean? Because, you know, every, like, three to five years, they mm -hmm. find something on Mars, and they're like, oh, this could mean life, and... Yeah, and they still never found anything for... Never found anything for sure. I mean, there are possibilities. There are, you know, potentials of like fossils and things found from Mars, but nothing that they've been able to confirm. So nothing that's really been confirmed. I mean, the bacteria, not, I mean, there's, they report it and then nothing ever gets followed up. I mean, it gets followed up on, but nothing ever gets confirmed where they can say, well, there's a possibility of it, but then, you know, you don't get the, you don't get the confirmation from further tests was the big problem. Okay, so seven, seven phases of cosmic evolution. We've talked about one, two, three, four of them. So we got three to do today. So we've done, you know, we've done four-sevenths of the class, and now the last three are sort of what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Particulate evolution is just really the origin of the universe, what happened in the very early stages of the universe. And then to form galaxies and stars and planets, we've talked all a little bit about those. You know, how did the galaxies form? How did the stars form? We've talked about the planets a little bit. And now we want to look on in terms of, you know, what happens as you get into a closer scale. You're getting in a much smaller scale, essentially, with each one. So what happens chemically, biologically, and then culturally? In order for us to detect another civilization someplace, it has to have some sort of technology that we can detect, right? Maybe we can detect a microbe on Mars because we can go there, but if we want to detect civilization on another star, there can be a microbe there, but it's not going to be sending radio signals to us. So we have no way to, without physically going there, we'd have no way to test for it. We'd have no way to find it. In order to find a civilization around another star, it would have to be at least as advanced as us. It would have to be able to communicate across interstellar distances. We can do that. We have the capability of sending signals out into space now. But we've only had that for the last hundred years. So we're going to look at those different, at those last three a little bit today as we have time. So we'll see what we can get through. Early on, history of the universe. We really don't know anything about the first billion years or so of the Earth. The Earth was too active, volcanoes, all sorts of stuff going on, wiping out anything that was there. So it, there's no evidence of you know, you can't find rocks that are that old on the Earth. You can't find any fossils that are that old. Just because everything constantly was remelted and reforming at the time. And there was just too much going on. So we really don't know about what the Earth was like that first billion years or so. What we do know is that, or what we believe, is that there were a lot of there was a lot of volcanic activity. Nothing like we have today. Incredible amount of volcanic activity. And the atmosphere would have been a little bit different than it is today. Hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon compounds. 
So, no ox not now no oxygen at the time, but you would have had hydrogen early on. Most of that's since been lost or incorporated into other compounds. Nitrogen, that's still here, and a lot of carbon compounds. And as it cooled, we formed other things. We formed a lot of things that we talk about elsewhere in the solar system, carbon dioxide on other planets, ammonia, methane, water, not only on the Earth. But those are all very simple compounds that form and in fact involve, in the case of methane, is carbon and hydrogen, ammonia is nitrogen and hydrogen, water is oxygen and hydrogen, so they're all hydrogen type compounds. And then carbon dioxide, of course, carbon and oxygen that formed. So as it cooled, some of these more, more complicated elements were able to form. What else would we think was there? I said the volcanic activity, lightning, so a lot of big storms in the, storms in the atmosphere, a lot more intense radioactivity than we have today. Ultraviolet radiation would have been intense. No, no ozone layer at the time, that had not formed yet. So ultraviolet radiation from the sun would stream in. So you'd have a lot of intense bombardment by ultraviolet radiation. So a lot of intense things going on that we don't see today. And of course meteoroid impacts. We're constantly getting smashed by meteoroids. Um, not as much so much now, right? But, um, but billions of years ago, the, the solar system had a lot more meteoroids in it and we were getting hit a lot more. So meteoroid impacts were a much more common thing early on. And what, hap what we believe happened is that over that first billion years or so, over that first to second billion years, certain molecules were created. Now, now this, is, this is not talking about life yet. This is just talking about organic molecules. And if you've studied any biology, amino acids are very basic building blocks of life. They're not living cells or any kind of organism. They're simply a building block of life. They're what you put together to form the DNA molecule that is the center of all of our cells that actually is, you know, gives us the ability to reproduce things. But what we think is with taking all of this information that we had, what we think the early atmosphere was like, so what the early atmosphere was like, what sort of things were there, the heat from volcanoes, lightning, radioactivity, all of this different stuff. If we put all this together, what happens if we do all of this and do a lab experiment? Put all this stuff, put that atmosphere together, you know, what we think was there, we think there was methane and ammonia and water, and what happens if we put that all together, subject it to ultraviolet radiation, <laughs> more radioactivity, lightning sparks and things like that, and what happens? And that's an experiment that was done uh, quite a while ago now, the Uri Miller experiment, and that's what they did. They took the water, so you boiled the water, keeping everything very hot, get the gases, and put that sort of combination of materials in there, have a spark discharge to simulate the lightning, and find out what do you get out of it. As you cycle that water through, evaporate it, put it through this mixture, what the early, at early atmosphere of the Earth might have been like, condense it back out, and find out what you get out of it, and we can create, you know, no, no little creature comes out of it and says, hi, here I am, but it creates amino acids. Doesn't create life, but it creates the building blocks of life. They're very easy to form. We can form those in the laboratory. Can we form life? No. But we can form the basic building blocks of it. We can form the amino acids very easily. 
and we find that the amino acids are all over the place. You find these kind of things throughout the solar system and you find many of these organic molecules in, on comets, asteroids, elsewhere in the solar system and even some of the organic molecules in some of the dense molecular clouds in space. So these type of organic molecules are very easy to form. Whether that means life is easy to form is another big question. But the molecules themselves are very easy to form. And again, big difference between that and a living, living creature. So what we think and what we found is the first simple, the very simplest creatures formed about three and a half billion years ago. And more complex, so about three and a half billion years ago we could see fossils of things like algae. You know, very, very simple, incredibly simple creatures. And to go from something like that to a more complex creature, an amoeba, right, real complex, right, an amoeba, still a single-celled organism, about two billion years ago. So it took two and a half billion years from the formation of the Earth to get to an amoeba. It took another billion years to get to things that had more than one cell, you know, things that were multiply, multiple cells, your organ, multi-cellular, uh, multicellular organisms, about a billion years ago. So just to put it into perspective, human civilization is about 10,000 years worth of that. You know, we're a speck compared to that. And if you want to count when we've been a technological civilization where we could communicate, it's less than 100 years. You know, first radio transmissions are about 100 years, uh, not quite 100 years ago. So that's the, anything before that you know, has no way to have detected, no way to detect us. No way to, we could send signals out into space now. But anything more than 100 light years away, well, they've got to wait till the signals get there. They take time to get there. So it takes a long time to be able to communicate. But just an idea, even 10,000 years is an overestimate because for most of that time we would not have been able to communicate with another civilization. It's only been the last 100 years that we would be able to, that we would be able to detect a signal or to send a signal that would be able to be detected. Okay, so in the solar system, and here's where I mentioned, life as we know it. What do we know? Well, life is essentially based on carbon and originated in liquid water. So you need, now we're getting a little more specific. So I said in general what life has to do earlier. Here's some specifics and it's, it's our bias because it's all we know. It's the only life we know of in the universe. So we ha what do we say? You know, it has to be carbon. You couldn't have anything else. You know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, could you? Yes. But I'm saying just your bias that you're looking is that that's what we have. You've got to have water. You've got to have water. Everything needs water. Yeah? Is this, so this is how they do carbon dating to date stuff, fossils, trees, or whatever? There's, carbon dating is done. It's not really the, this isn't the, I haven't talked about the process. This, uh, what? I haven't talked about the process by which carbon, mm, not specifically. If you need me to, I can, but. It's carbon dating only carbon dating only works in the very recent past. It works real well to date things that are hundreds or thousands of years old. It won't help us with this billion years. There's well, other there's other methods. Yeah. Right. That is more carbon dating era that carbon can actually, you know, things that are fossilized, not fossilized, but things, things that had uh, living content to them can be determined. 
at that type of range. But the earlier ones, no, you can't. Okay. So where are we going to find, if, if we assume carbon and liquid, and liquid water, that you need those for life, where are we going to find life in our solar system? Well, Mars is probably going to be your best shot. Mars doesn't have liquid water right now, but it certainly did. We have evidence that water flowed on Mars billions of years ago. So could there be evidence of Mars? That's what we mentioned earlier. That, you know, are there, you know, fossils of bacteria and other minor organisms on Mars? You know, no evidence of any kind of big civilization. I think if there had been a great civilization on Mars, you know, we'd have long since been able to find it. But could there have been some kind of could there have been some kind of life there? Certainly. Harder, harder, further out, Europa is one of the moons of Jupiter. Has a water ocean below its crust. Has an icy crust and below it is liquid water. So could something form there? Titan is one of the moons of Saturn. Is the only moon with a significant atmosphere. Actually has an atmosphere a little bit thicker than the Earth's. Made up primarily of nitrogen. A lot of these carbon compounds that we've been talking about. If we stick with this, if we stick with carbon-based and liquid water, you can pretty much rule out everything else. You know, based on that, there's not going to be any life on Mercury. Okay, it's much too hot, no sign of no way we could have liquid water. You know, Venus, again, way too hot, no liquid water. It's been too hot for too long. Most of the other objects in the solar system you can pretty much rule out because they're either they're not going to have the ability to have the you know, significant amounts of carbon-based uh, molecules or they're not going to have the liquid water that we need. So those are our best bets in the solar system. And again, if we're looking for anything, you're really looking for a microbe. You're looking for something very small, single-celled organisms. Okay, so I said we were kind of biased by uh, carbon and water. Well, could you use silicon? Silicon in the periodic table is, uh, carbon's number six, silicon is right below it, and if you studied chemistry, the way the periodic table is set up is that the columns are all have similar chemical properties. And that means that silicon would have a simical, similar chemical property to carbon. So, could you base life on silicon instead? No, Sci big science fiction thing with rock creatures, right, based on a silicon instead. Or could you, instead of the liquid, could be ammonia or methane instead of water? You know, possibility, it's certainly something that is possible, but we don't think on our present understanding, maybe we don't understand everything right, so maybe we're wrong, but silicon does not form the big long chains of molecules as easily. It's similar, it can form them, but they're not as long, they're not as stable, it doesn't form those intense uh, carbon organic molecules that, that carbon, the organic molecules that carbon forms. In terms of using another liquid, well, ammonia and methane are, are good. They can be liquids. And in fact, you can have liquid methane on Titan, which is one of the reasons we think about Titan as a place for life. But they're cold. You know, they're extremely cold. To have liquid methane, it's not nice and warm. You're not going to want go, to go swimming in liquid methane. You know, for us, that would be freezing us. The liquid ammonia, it's going fr to freeze because the temperatures needed are so much lower than we're used to for you know, water. And chemical reactions go very slowly in that case. So would life be able to form in them? Or would it take a much longer time for the proper reactions to occur? It's a good question. It's certainly not saying that they're not possible, but they're not as likely just based on what, just based on what we know about the 
components, just what we know about those specific items. Okay, out to the galaxy now. Drake equation. Did you do the Drake equation lab? Did you do a Drake equation lab? Yes? Okay. You did the calculations through to figure out how many, you get to figure out how, you, you figure out the Drake equation, you know exactly how many intelligent civilizations there are in the universe or in the galaxy. Problem is we don't know any of the numbers you put into it, so it's, you can get any answer you want from one in a billion to, you know, millions of them. It just depends on what numbers you put in. But the concept of it is really important, and this is sort of looking at it schematically, is saying that if you take all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy, that's not too bad of a number. We can actually get a pretty good estimate on that. Figure out how many of those have planets. Okay, that's, we're getting better at that. We're actually detecting a lot of planets. We're getting a better idea of how many stars have planets. That was even a guess not too long ago. How many are habitable? Now we're starting to get harder. We're finding a few that might be in the habitable zone. Still getting harder to tell there. Then we get down to the guesses. Simple life. Do you form simple life? Well, do you form it any time you got a habitable planet? Is it real easy? The molecules are the basis of it. But is it real easy to go from that to life? Does it happen all the time? Is it 100%? Or is it one in a billion or one in a trillion? You know, are we the odd case? How often do you form intelligence? So if you form sim if simple life forms, does it naturally become more and more intelligent? Or does there, are there many planets out there that are just filled with amoeba? You know, just planet, planet, I mean, that's quite a possibility too. So does it naturally try to form intelligent life once you form life? Does an intelligent life form a technical society? Now, I mean, it seems natural to us because this is the steps we've gone through and that's why the equation is put together this way. But is that necessarily correct? You know, if we weren't here and dolphins were the most intelligent creatures on the planet, are they, they're not, you know, say they're intelligent, are they able to communicate? With us, maybe, maybe you can work something out. Could they communicate with another civilization? They're not capable of building a radio telescope, right? To communicate. Doesn't mean they're not intelligent, but they're not going to be a technical society. Could they change in two billion years and be something, you know? Turn into, you know, mermaids and mermen or something? Or would they change into some other kind of creatures that could? Well, maybe. Maybe something could change. But as of right now, you know, you could, you could even call them perhaps intelligent, but you can't call them a technical society. They don't have any way of communicating with another civilization. And then finally is long-lasting technology. How long does that technical society last? We've been here for not quite a hundred years as a technical society. Do we last another couple years and blow ourselves up and no longer a technical society? Destroy everything? Or do we get through and last billions of millions or billions of years? And that's a big question. And the problem with a lot of these is that, you know, it's easy to see. We can see lots of stars. We can actually detect planets now. We can get some idea of where the planets and how many good planets there might be in a solar system. But when it gets to the other numbers, it's a guess. It's really a guess. We only have Earth to go by. So we don't know whether Earth is the really oddball case, the one in a billion trillion case where everything happened to work. Or if all of those, you know, well, no, once you got the habitable planet, boom, you have life immediately. And that's the problem is we don't know those, know those terms. So this is just the equation again, and there's a couple different versions of it. But this is just saying that if you have a certain number of civilizations, and this is right from your text too, 
you can just take these numbers, multiply them all together, and if you know exactly what they are, that tells you exactly how many civilizations there are. Again, problem is, I can give you a good number for the first one, but you're a pretty good number for the second, maybe getting an idea of the third, and then I have no clue. So I can't tell you whether they're, again, one, which would mean the fraction would be all of them, or if the fraction is one in a billion for each. And that makes a big difference as to how many civilizations there would be in the galaxy. Now, before, when we look at them, here's some of the numbers. I'm going to go through real quick here just to do a quick calculation. Rate of star formation, that's pretty good. We have a pretty good handle on that. It's about 10 stars per year. It might vary a little bit, but we can get a pretty good estimate just taking by how many stars there are in the galaxy, by how old it is. We can say, well, we form so many stars per year in the Milky Way. That's something we can get astronomically. That's an astronomical one. We can figure that out. Fractions of stars having planetary systems. This has changed over the last few years because, you know, 20 years ago it was a guess. We thought there were evidence, we thought there were planetary systems out there, but we couldn't confirm many or any. Now we've actually been able to detect, what's the last number, 600, 700 and some, of planets that are outside our own solar system. So we've been detecting a lot more and so that's sort of upping this for a fraction. Can we find a lot of frac can we find a lot of stars that possibly have planets? So, can we find a lot of stars that potentially have planets? And we're finding a lot more planetary systems. So it seems like planets are being quite are quite common in the universe and in our galaxy. How many habitable planets do we have? Okay, this is another good question, is where do you find the habitable planets? And we're going back to our own biases of around Earth. Okay, we're saying we need liquid water. So where are the temperatures going to be reasonable and that we can form liquid water around different types of stars? Sun is a G-type star, so you have this range around it where you could have a planet form. Venus is just inside that, Mars is a little ways outside it, the Earth happens to be right in that what we call the habitable zone. For a star a little, little hotter than the sun, it's got a bigger area, a little further out. For a star cooler than the sun, a real cool M-type star, those are the real tiny ones, and a star is buried down there, a little dot, and you have a very small habitable zone. You have to be right in that area around it in order to form a, in order to have a planet that could sustain liquid water. So, smaller stars we tend to throw out, we tend to throw out the M-type stars just saying that it's too small. What are, the, what are the probabilities of getting a planet to form right around, right in that spot? It's almost precisely has to be formed there. If it's a little too far or a little too close, it's not going to work. Plus, you're also so close to the star that remember all the solar flares and things we've had this semester you know, that affect the Earth? Well, we're well away from the Sun. If you were that close to your star, those intense ones would also be more damaging. So the activity on that star would likely cause a lot of trouble too. The other stars, as you get towards hotter and hotter stars, the, the life zone gets bigger, the habitable zone gets bigger and bigger. The problem is, remember those stars don't live very long. So if it took us a billion years to get to single-celled creatures and that star has a 15 million year lifetime, it's gone before the planets have had a chance to solidify and form a solid surface, right? 
form the star, maybe planets are forming around it, it blows itself up in a supernova before you even get to have a chance to form a solid surface on the planet, let alone life. So we tend to look at specific types of stars similar to the sun. Again, we're looking at our own bias. Does, is it possible for life to form quicker? Or is it possible that you know, you'll get those, star, those, those um, planets around an M star where you could actually form it? It's a possibility. But we do. We look at our own bias in it when we do, when we do this. Okay, within the galaxy. In terms of looking at the number of stars, we also have to look in the galaxy. You really don't want to be too close to the center of the galaxy because the radiation is more intense there. The density of particles is more intense. You have more radiation coming from that black hole at the center, right? Four, four, four million solar mass or so black hole. A lot of intense radiation still coming from that even though it's not near as bad as some of the other galaxies we've seen. And if you go too far out in the galaxy, there's nothing to form a planet from. Well, maybe you can form a Jupiter, you can form a hydrogen planet. But you need areas close in where there have been enough supernova explosions to put all those heavy elements out into the mix to form the next generation of stars. But if you're, so if you're too far out, you're not going to get a planet. You might get a planet, you might get a Jupiter, but nothing that would be able to form life. And if you're too close in, it's going to be much too intense radiation, and you're probably not going to be able to form life as well. So again, you're looking at certain parts around a star, you're looking at certain areas around the galaxy itself as well. Finally, still trying to figure out the number of stars, still working on that next term. A lot of stars are binaries. That means there's more than one star together orbiting each other. And you have certain places around those where you can get stable orbits of stars. So if you have two stars that are widely separated, you can get a star orbiting just around one of them. If you've got two stars that are relatively close together, you can have a star in a long orbit, large orbit around both of them at once. Those would both be relatively stable and you could form a planet there. You can also get some odd things. You know, nice little figure eight, how would that kind of orbit be? You know, how'd you like to live on that planet? When you get right to the middle, you've got a sun there and you've got a sun there and it's never night, right? Sun rises, sun sets at the same time. Or you get over here, you'd have two stars in the sky. It would be, be very interesting. Problem is, as you get more and more complex with these, the orbits don't end up not being stable. And little deviations eventually throw you too close to one star and fling you out of the solar system or fling you too close to another star. So it, it, you're not likely to get a good stable orbit in a binary system. You can in some cases, but usually you've got to get too far away from the stars or too close to them in order to form those planets that would be a stable orbit. So you're unlikely to get too many in a binary system. So the estimate that we're giving, the text gives you, is about 1 in 10. We say that maybe, maybe one habitable planet, and that doesn't mean it's got everything else on it, but it's about in the right zone, about the right distance from the star, for every 10 planetary systems. So about 1 in 10. Again, those are astronomical. Those are relative. I can give you decent estimates for them. They might not be perfect. I'm not going to say it's 1 in 10. Maybe it's 1 in 20. Maybe it's 1 in 5. But it's probably not that far off. Now we get to the ones that we have no clue on. Absolutely no clue. On what fraction of habitable planets does life actually arise? Well, we know of one. That's all we know of. So is that common? You know, is it all of them? So is it you know, 90% or 99% of them? Or is it one in a trillion? 
And are we the one in our galaxy? Is that it? Experiments say that, well, we can form a lot of, we can form the organic molecules relatively easily, but in terms of life actually arising, we don't know. You know, we can't put all that we said, we put all those, all those chemicals into the tubes and we can subject them to the early atmospheric conditions and you can create organic molecules. You don't create any single-celled creatures, you don't create any little green aliens coming out and saying, hi, I'm here. So we don't really see, we don't see them. We can't, we can't just do that. We can duplicate that we can produce the organic molecules. We can't reproduce the life. So we don't know. So what they're going to do here is they're going to, be, they're going to give you a very optimistic answer on these. We're pretty much going to go one the rest of the way along. And just say, let's be optimistic. Let's just say, you know, what is the chance, what's the best chance we think that there would be life elsewhere? So we're going to say one, that if you get a habitable planet, it's going to form life. Not necessarily intelligent life, but it'll form life. Does it, get, does it become intelligent? Again, it's a, it's a guess. I can't tell you for sure we, how many intelligent civilizations do we know of. Well, one, if you count us. Right? Some people can debate that. You know, are we an intelligence? That, well, you know, depends on the person you're talking to, right? So, is it, is it something that does form? If you form life, does it tend to become intelligent? Or do you have planets out there that formed life and it's all you know, just formed single-celled amoeba and that's it. And they never formed in over billions of years. That's where they stayed. So again, it's all speculation, but we're being optimistic. Let's just say it's one. Let's just say that, looking on the best case scenario, saying that, well, yeah, if you form life, it's going to become intelligent. Is it going to develop and use a technology? It makes sense, but again, I mentioned the dolphins, right? The dolphins don't, you know, they're, say they're an intelligent society. They don't have any kind of technology. Could they maybe in the future? Could something change? Could they change? Well, you know, who knows? It's all a matter of speculation. Again, we're using our bias on Earth that says, well, this is how we've done it, so everybody else is going to do it the same way. Well, maybe things, maybe things are different elsewhere. But again, we're just going to estimate, we're going to say, okay, we're looking at the best case, so we're going to say it's a one. Yep, all of them form. You form, form life, you form intelligent life, you form technical life. So we've got the first six factors. If we multiply 10 times 1 times a tenth times 1 times 1 times 1, you see why we put those numbers in there? It gives you 1. We've still got one more, ter one more term to go, though. So that means that how many intelligent civilizations there are, technological civilizations, in the galaxy is equal to their average lifetime. How long does one last? Well, we thought the other numbers were guesses. This is an even bigger guess because we don't have anything to go by. You know, we don't know the lifetime of any technical civilization, including ours. We know how long we've been here, but we don't know if we're gone tomorrow or if we're here for another million years. We don't have any clue. So is it a hundred years? You know, that's the one we have to go by. Is a hundred an average or do they, some of them destroy themselves earlier? You know, we developed nuclear weapons only, what, 20 years after we developed radio communication. So, you know, could some of them last only 20 or 25 years and be gone? It's a big question as to exactly how long that is. So, again, can't even use us as an example. We don't know how long it will last. So we don't even have any examples. To, at least we have one example on the others. We know that it is possible at some point that life can form. We're here. Either that or we're all a big imagination of things. Oh, there we go again. <sighs> okay, thank you. So we don't, we don't know. You know. Maybe we're somebody's imagination, right? We're not even a... We're not even a technical civilization.
and we made very optimistic assumptions. You know, we said, oh yeah, everything is, you know, life forms, life becomes intelligent, life becomes technical, all very easily. What if one of those is wrong? What if one of them is, what if each of them is one in a hundred? You know, still, well, that's not bad, one in a hundred, but when you multiply one in a hundred by one in a hundred by one in a hundred by one in a hundred, you all of a sudden go from even if a civilization lasts a million years to there being one civilization. So depending on exactly what those numbers are, it makes a big difference. So the number of civilizations can drop very quickly depending on those numbers that we put in for it. So, let's be even more optimistic. Let's say that the average lifetime, average, you know, maybe some blow themselves up in 20 or 30 years, maybe some only last 100 or 200 years, but the average is a million years. So being really optimistic on all this right now. That says there should be a million civilizations in our galaxy. So on average, if you average them over our galaxy, our nearest neighbor would be about 100 light years away. Meaning we couldn't even communicate with them yet. Right? Even if they'd send us, even if they've been sending us, even if we're sending them signals right now, they haven't gotten a signal from us yet, because nothing from Earth has traveled 100 light years yet. Right? We've only been radio communication since when? About a little over, a little under 100 years. Right? When was the 20s or so that radio started? Really? So in order to actually be able to send something out, it's been that long. We haven't even gotten 100 light years away. Of course, that's on the average. There could be one five light years away, or it could be a thousand light years away. That's, of course, just an average. And it's not something you're ever going to be able to communicate with. Right? We send them a signal right now. Okay, we found out where they are. We know they're there. I send them a signal today, 2012. 100 years later, 2112, they get it. They, set, they immediately decode it and send it back to us. 2212, we've got our answer. I'm not still going to be here. Probably none of us are still going to be here, right? So, you know, it's children or grandchildren who will be getting a signal back. And then if you want to say something else to them, it's not, it's not going to be an efficient way to communicate just because the time lag is so long and it takes the, takes the signals. We have no way, unless we come up with some kind of, you know, hyperspace travel or something that you can send signals faster than light, that's how long it's going to take for roughly what would be the nearest civilization going on our very optimistic estimates. Okay, so communicating. We've sent, we've sent out communications. This is, pi, this is the plaque that was put on Pioneer 10 and sort of trying to explain, you know, sending it out to the universe saying here we are. Of course, Pioneer 10 is now to the edge of the solar system. It would take it, oh, what is it, 30 or 40,000 years to get to another star. So even traveling at the fast speeds it's traveling right now. But there's a lot of information there in terms of the picture of the spacecraft itself. Schematics of the humans showing where we're coming from. Here's our sun with all of the planets. Here's where the spacecraft came from. Uh, this is little googly eyes there, right? Looks like. That's actually that hydrogen transition that makes that 21 centimeter. Showing the electron and the proton, figuring that that's something that, you know, another technical society might recognize. That you have a proton and you have one electron electron spinning this way and one pointing the other way, so you had that transition. That is one of the primary ones in the universe. And this little thing down here is actually a number of different pulsars. It's the distances to and locations of different pulsars. So things that might be common and might some other technical society might be able to recognize. And that was, again, sent out with Pioneer 10 and there have been other ones on the Voyager probe, similar, and recordings that have been sent out. But again, they've gotten to the edge of our solar system. We haven't begun to get close 
to the next nearest star. So unless something is sitting out there in the depths of space around our solar system looking for us, it's going to take many thousands and tens of thousands of years for these to get anywhere near anything. All right, almost there. Communicating. We also send out signals all the time. You know, we're broadcasting radio, we're broadcasting things out into space. So we're sending signals. So if you could look at the Earth from space, well, it would get brighter at times and fainter at times depending on what part of the Earth was visible. A lot of the broadcasts come from where? East coast of the U.S., west coast of the U.S., there's Western Europe. So when you see those coming up or rising, you're going to get more intensity while they're up above the horizon. And you're going to get much less when you're looking like over the Pacific Ocean where there isn't near as much. So we're sending that signal out into space and we've been doing that for nearly 100 years now. It would be very hard to detect. It's a very, even though it seems like a very intense signal here, when you send it out through space, it's very low intensity. It would be very hard. You'd have to have a very, very strong radio telescope. In fact, our, teles- our most intense telescopes would not be able to pick up this kind of radiation from even the distance of the nearest star. But there would be a pattern there. If you have a civilization that's more advanced than us that might have better technology, may be able to detect something like this. And we've been sending that out for you know, close, to 100, close to 100 years now. If we're going to communicate, where are we going to communicate? Well, area we call the water hole. So watering hole for communications. The water hole is actually an area of the radio spectrum. And that's what this, dia- this little messy diagram is showing. And this is the different frequencies in the radio part of the spectrum. This shows the different things are showing the, what, the atmospheric absorption. So where the atmosphere absorbs a lot of that. Where the, well, there's the atmosphere, the dotted line. Here's the galactic. The galaxy is just has some intensity to it. The cosmic microwave background, remember we talked about that, that's there. If you put all of those together and add them together, you get this blue line, which shows the higher up it is, the more noise you're getting. So it's very noisy to look at these frequencies. It's very noisy to look at those frequencies. It wouldn't be a good area to communicate. So we think that a good one might be what we call the water hole, which is very close to that 21 centimeter line of hydrogen. And just on the other side of it, there's a emission from another molecule, the hydroxyl molecule, which is oxygen and hydrogen. And the reason it's called the water hole is if you put H and OH together, you get H2O water. So if you were to combine those two, you'd actually get water. So that's like the hole between those two is the watering hole. And that's where you think maybe, and that's what our logic leads us to, is a reasonable place to communicate. If not, if not where, where else? So we're using it again as our thought of it, as to where we think that's where we've been searching. Of course, the problem is if we're searching there and somebody's broadcasting there, yeah. they can send, if we're not listening at the same frequency as they're broadcasting, it doesn't do any good. Or if we're broadcasting at a frequency where they're not listening, it doesn't do us much good. We're not going to be able to detect it. Okay. And just about done here. This is the Green Bank Telescope, one that's been used for extraterrestrial signals and has been looked, used to look for them. We've sent signals out and here's what, we're, here's what they're looking for. And this is sort of the noise that you'd get. It would normally be a very staticky, just you know, bright and dark all over the place. If you get a signal, 
you'd get some sort of line through it. We haven't found anything as of yet. Is it out there and we just haven't detected it? Is it too weak for our technology? Or are we, are we just here alone? Are all good questions? And I can't really give you any, I can't give you a good answer, answer to them. So, all I've got left, I should have left, is the summary if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So, do you want the quiz now? I'll give you your choice. I can either go through the summary and get, or give you the quiz now if you want to get it out of the way. Or I'll bring it to the final two because I know people aren't here and I know at least one person's already had to leave. So I'll still bring it to the final two. You'll have the option. It's up to you. Right now, if anyone who wants to take it now is well, but we do. Anyone who wants to take it now is welcome to stay and take it and be done with it. Is that good? Because all I have left is the summary, and I've just gone through all of this really, and you have the copy of it. And if you want to take it at the final, I'll bring it back at the final, and you can take it then as well. So I'll leave it. I'll leave. I'll leave you the choice. So why don't we just finish up there? And I'll say so you have that option. If you want to take it now, you can and be done with it. 